0: good evening everyone before we get started for this evening restrooms will be to the door to the left where you just entered and that will also be our exit this evening good evening again and welcome my name is marilyn padilla i'm the public relations director here at the aquarium of the pacific And before we get started this evening, if you have cell phones with you, we ask that you please turn them on vibrate or turn them off as well as any other electronic devices and to refrain from texting during the presentation. First off, I would like to thank our lecture sponsors, the Gazette Newspapers and Courtyard Marriott. Tonight, I have the privilege to introduce Danielle Eubank. She's going to discuss her experiences documenting the world's oceans in her paintings. Eubank is a painter who is exploring the relationship relationship between abstractism and realism. She has sailed both and painted all the oceans on Earth, and I'm sure she has some exciting stories to tell us. Her travels have included expeditions aboard replica historic tall ships. Eubank is a former director of the Women's Caucus for Art a pollock Kranzer Foundation grant awardee, a member of the Explorers Club, a 2018 Creative Climate Awards nominee, and the awardee of the 2018 WCA United Nations Program Honor Roll. Her paintings are on exhibit here at the Aquarium, which many of you had the chance to see this evening, and today is the debut date. They'll be on exhibit here until January 5th and her um, paintings are also available at the C Gallery Fine Arts here in Long Beach. It is my great pleasure to introduce Danielle Eubank.
1: Thank you, Marilyn, thank you all. Um, I am so excited to be here tonight with all of you. It's great to um, be here amongst people who really care about the environment and care about our oceans and waterways and sea life Um, i do have a few little stories to share with you i hope that you will find them entertaining Um, i as some of you may know i have spent about two decades sailing and painting all of the oceans on the planet and um, that's what i want to talk to you about tonight so First thing is a question that I get asked quite a lot, um, which is, doesn't all water look the same, right? It's just clear. How are you gonna paint water? How are you going to even approach it? Well, I don't think that it all looks the same. Here are eight paintings of mine. A few of these you can see upstairs. These represent uh, four different oceans. Let's see, a river, a pond in front of a temple, um, and a bay. And depending on uh, how deep the water is, what kind of minerals there are in it, where it is on the earth, in relation to um, how far it is from the equator and things like that, it's going to look pretty different, at least in my mind. Let's see. So, um, one artist, Five Oceans is my decades long quest to paint all of the oceans on the planet in order to help raise awareness about the state of oceans and climate change. On the right, this is a painting of mine which is of the Bay of Jakarta. Has anybody here been to, seen the Bay of Jakarta? Anybody raise your hand? Well, the interesting thing about it is that the air sometimes is so polluted. that it lends these amazing oranges to the water. So this is a painting that I started at 6.15. It's pretty close to the equator, so the sun rises and sets about 6 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the evening every day. Um, One artist, Five Oceans is, um, also was started very much by accident. So I, I kind of fell into it, both literally and figuratively. Uh, when I, I remember a very early memory when I was about 12 years old. I remember sitting on the beach staring out at the Pacific Ocean with my mom and dad and just looking at the water and thinking, I'll never be able to draw that. Right? The shapes were moving and undulating, and I couldn't understand it, and it didn't make sense, and then all these crazy colors were being reflected and shown from underneath, and it seemed impossible. And then fast forward about 15 or so years, I um, was on a trip to the south of Spain with a girlfriend of mine, and um, to my ignorance, I thought that we were, gonna, we were in this um, protected area, this wilderness area, and in my ignorance, I thought, oh yeah, we're gonna see all these wild lynxes and it's gonna be fabulous, right? Well, turns out you're not allowed to go inland because the animals are protected. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. So we were stuck on this beach and I still had this fear, if you will, of painting the water. It just seemed too damn hard. So I sat there with my back to the Atlantic Ocean painting the dunes. And after three days of painting the dunes, I got kind of fed up sitting in the sun painting dunes. So I turned around, and I had that exact same feeling that I did when I was 12 years old. But this time, I was staring at the Atlantic Ocean. So I finally said, OK, I've got to find a way to approach this subject matter in my own voice. And my first painting is still called Dunes, but it has this little tiny triangle of water in it, you know. And then a couple weeks later, another accident happened, this time more literally. Um, I was still in Spain with the same friends, and I was cycling on a single track road or single track pathway on the side of a mountain. And it turns out you can cycle too slowly. <laughs> so I fell down the mountain through a gorse bush, just like Winnie the Pooh and completely messed up my ankles, my ankle, and uh, the Guardia Seville had to come in and rescue me. And and anyway, that was the end of my cycling career. Uh, So my friends went on to uh, cycle the Picos, which is pretty amazing. And I went on a much more leisurely route. I went to um, a small, sleepy fishing village in the north of Spain, and I sat on the quay every day for two or three months and um, painted the water. Incidentally, I found out from the locals later on that they just did not know who this crazy American was because I showed up completely black and blue, right? Because I had come directly from this thing. I was completely black and blue with gorse stickers all in my body. And I was sitting on the key every day sketching water. They thought I was like some creature from some other planet. Um, One artist, Five Oceans is also, a way, or it is also um, something that I've been approaching by being an expedition artist. I've been on four international sailing expeditions, which I'll tell you about in just a second. So that's very much part of it. And then finally, it's my way, hopefully, to get people to really look at water. Um, My hope is that people will look at it and um, they'll think about it and if they look at it and think about it, hopefully they'll have some passion and feel about it. Um, because if they do those three things, I'm hoping that people will act more in order to save water, protect water, help it be clean, help it uh, make it available to all, not just to people, but you know, for all living organisms. So what is an expedition artist? Um, that's me in Syria. This is when an um, uh, uh, expedition that I was on, called the Phoenician Ship Expedition, was being built. Um, I like to say that an expedition artist is somebody that has amazing concentration skills. As you see, the guy with the chainsaw, <laughs> he's actually helping build the Phoenician vessel. Um, so he was uh, chainsawing a giant chunk of oak um, as part of the the structure of that boat. But there's a long tradition of expedition artists. So the ancient expeditions, if you think of Captain Cook, he had William Hodges. And in those days, of course, there was no photography. So they needed expedition artists, right? They needed them to uh, paint the boat, to paint the crew. But most importantly, to paint all the things and all the new plants and all the new animals that they saw on their expeditions. More recently, you think of um, you think of Ernest Shackleton, right? so you think 20th century, and his photographer, Frank Hurley, famously captured uh, shackleton 's ship getting crushed by the sea ice and um, there are some fabulous documentaries which I, I highly recommend, and you, you see that what uh, Hurley did is he actually came back into the boat after it had been crushed and dived into the water and got his film. I don't know how the film <laughs> survived somehow, I guess because the water is so cold. But he, um, if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have nearly as much of an appreciation of what Shackleton achieved at that time. So fast forward uh, another 100 years, my, my uh, footsteps are much smaller than theirs. But, and photography is much more well-developed. But. So now, uh, for me, being an expedition artist means capturing the excitement of the expedition, capturing, of course, I do sketches of all the other crew members and where we go and the boat, but it's really telling the story in a much more emotive way. The first expedition that I was part of was the Borobudur Ship Expedition. Um, How many of you guys have been to the Borobudur Temple? Has anybody here in central Java? Oh, there's some bucket list things going on here tonight. You gotta get there. It is the largest stupa temple in the world, which means the ones with the heads, right? It's the largest monument in the southern hemisphere, and um, It is a Buddhist temple. So there are these stages of enlightenment, right? And then as you go up, you get closer and closer to enlightenment, supposedly. And in the middle are the stages of real life. And there are these four stone relief carvings of this completely wackadoodle-looking vessel, right? It's got these, you notice the two bipod masts, which can be both square-rigged or latine-rigged. It's got a gallery on both sides and then it has these double outriggers and this is a vessel from the 8th century common era um, which supposedly sailed from um, Indonesia all the way to the west coast of Africa or put more accurately what I should say is there are cultural traits shared between Indonesia and West Africa and we don't know how that happened or why that happened, right? It could be, we know that people from Indonesia settled Madagascar, right? Which is off the east coast of Africa. But we don't know how these cultural traits got all the way to West Africa. So it could be that they sailed to the east coast and then they told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends, right? Or it could be that um, a boat like this made it all the way to West Africa. So that, and that 's the uh, the voyage that this that this uh, boat took, so I was expedition artist for that, which took uh, seven year, uh, seven years seven months out of of time um, with the boat and actually going ahead of the boat and um, creating studios wherever I went in Africa. This is a painting that I made of the vessel for that expedition. I had a show of over hundred paintings and photographs in a central London gallery. I think you can see from this painting actually um, a little bit better how the boat was. You can really see those galleries and the outriggers on either side. It's about a 65 foot boat for those of you who uh, know your boats. (laughs) Um, Another painting that I made of the expedition is um, this one. So when I go on these expeditions, I paint the crew and I paint the ship. Um, I paint portraits of water. That's really what I'm most passionate about. And on the Barbador Ship Expedition, I painted the Indian Ocean and I painted the Atlantic Ocean. Incidentally, um, this painting is of Cape Town. This is the V&A um, Harbor there, waterfront. The next expedition that I was part of was the Phoenicia ship expedition. So this boat is also a replica, but it's considerably older. It's about 1,200 years older than that ancient Indonesian boat that we just looked at. So Herodotus, who is the father of history, he said that uh, in about 500 BC, he said that the Phoenicians were the first people to round the Cape of Good Hope. And he said that they did that in 600 BCE. Um, that was about 2,000 years before Vasco da Gama or Bartholomew Diaz. Now, I don't know about you, but I was taught in school that they were the first ones to do it. But no, I think probably the Phoenicians did it 2,000 years first before, right? It looks a lot. It's interesting to me that this boat, this is a photograph of mine um, at, the, at the Straits of Gibraltar. And it's interesting to me that although this boat is 12 to 1,300 years older than the other boat, it looks more boaty, like the kind of boat that you would draw as a kid. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Um, so the boat we built in Syria, um, as you know, Syria is a Mediterranean country. And that's where uh, one of the places where the Phoenicians were, the very eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And the way that the boat is constructed is you have these planks that are put together, the wooden planks. And then you have these olive wood tenons, kind of like tongue joints, right, that go in between your planks. And then there are two pegs for each one. So this ends up having 8,000 olive wood tenons and 16,000 pegs in order to hold this together. But uh, kind of interestingly, it has um, iron nails, which is unusual in boat building, right, to have metal in with the wood because it kind of grind- It doesn't you know work with the expansion of water the same way that the wood does. But that's according to the Jules Verne 7 shipwreck, which is currently off the coast of Marseille, France. Then um, Phoenicia, we circumnavigated Africa. So we did as Herodotus said was possible. It took two years and two months and two days, but who's counting? (laughs) Um, We started out in Syria. So here we are, we started out in Syria, then we we sailed clockwise around through the Red Sea. um, And then we kind of boomeranged up to Yemen because at that time, there were a lot of pirates. So we gave Somalia a nice wide berth and came around to the Comoros Islands, went around um, Cape of Good Hope, St. Helena said hello to um, Napoleon, and then we came way out actually into the Atlantic Ocean and then back up through the Straits of Gibraltar to um, Lebanon and then back to Syria. Um, The boat currently, by the way, is on a second expedition because there are some people who believe that um, a boat of that design could have made it to the Americas. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to join them, but they are currently en route coming across the Atlantic. When I am on an expedition, I have developed a fairly economical set of supplies that I take, which are um, environmentally friendly. I take um, two or three sketchbooks, and I take a very strict set of colors with me. Um, And as you may see, there is a very important object here, which is called coffee. (laughs) Now, this is in Syria. And um, when I would go and paint every morning before helping the rest of the crew build the boat, um, there was a, a lovely man who would bring me very strong Syrian coffee, which was a lifesaver. Um, I have brought for you, um, to show you a couple of things if anyone wants to see afterwards. Here these are the types of sketchbooks that I take. Um, I don't know how many of you are artists, but this is exactly what I'll do is I'll take a small, medium and large sketchbook, just like the ones in the photograph. So you get an idea of what I take. And then I take a couple of brushes. And then I take this exact same Tupperware, which is in that photograph, which tells you how long Tupperware lasts, because that's a very old photograph. Um, And I just take a couple of colors and a couple of, um, of, uh, as I mentioned, environmentally friendly chemicals. And that's it. That's all I need. Customs doesn't love me, but um, it's pretty simple. By the way, while I'm thinking of it, I also have some cards to give you as souvenirs afterwards if anybody wants to come up and get one. Um, And also, you can see in this photograph where I'm sitting. This is a fabulous projector, because you can really make out all of the trash and rubbish where I sit and do my work on these expeditions. This is, um, as I mentioned, it's in Syria. And this is where the Phoenicians were. So there are 2,000 years worth of crud, right, in this place. And this is very typical from of wherever I go in the world. It doesn't matter what country I'm in. There seems to be this kind of junk, um, a lot of plastic, a lot of painted metal, a lot of painted wood. Um, on the Phoenician ship expedition, I painted the Indian Ocean and I painted the Mediterranean Sea. This. A painting of mine it's also um, visible upstairs in the exhibition is painted from Beira Mozambique and it is uh, a painting of a police boat which is up on stilts but what makes it kind of interesting from the what I was talking about in the previous slide is that that night and the three previous nights there was a trawler in the same area, I I wouldn't call it a marina because most of the places where I end up being on these boats, it isn't a a sort of pleasure boat marina, it's more industrial than that. They were sandblasting all night long for nights on end, probably shortened my life by about 10 years, breathing in whatever kind of crud I was breathing, we were all breathing in. But what it did is it, it it laid down this film of dust on the water right which changed the viscosity of the water the the surface tension so i was able to uh, come up with some some kind of interesting ideas because of the way that the water reflected the light it was completely different <laughs> and um, also in syria this is a painting of the sale of phoenicia that I did as part of that expedition. This was the first day that we put the sail on the boat. So it was quite an important day for us. And what I wanna show for you, um, so this is the resulting painting, and this is where I painted it. So you can see the reflection of the sail. You can probably see all the crud in the water. There um, is a lot, there's plastic and shopping carts, and painted wood and painting, painted metal. Um, the most salient thing, of course, is plastic because it floats and takes so long to, um, to decompose. And when it decomposes, that's not exactly fabulous for the marine life anyway. Uh, and as I mentioned before, it's 2,000 like literally 2,000 years of junk. Because just beyond this, um, outside the, the frame of this particular photo, is um, the, a Phoenician wall. So the Phoenicians were there. Um, probably littering, but probably not with plastic. <laughs> so, going back to what I created, so that's what I created, which is kind of the way that I deal with a lot of the rubbish that I see wherever, wherever I'm painting. This is also typical. Um, this, was, this happened to be in Syria, but I've seen this in Taiwan. I've seen this in England. I've seen this in the United States. Um, I've even seen plastic bottles in the Arctic in the middle of nowhere. There'll be like ancient whale bones from the whaling industry and then plastic bottles and plastic ropes. Um, I, I hasten to say, you know, it's visually pretty awful, but probably um, any scientists in the office can verify, uh, scientists in the, in the audience can verify this, but It isn't the plastic and the crud that you see. It's all the lead and the broken down plastic that you can't see, right? which is in the water, which is getting consumed by the animals, which is much worse. But yeah, I like the the rug. (laughs) Like, I don't know, I'll just put my rug in the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I often get asked about what life is like on board. So I want to share with you a couple of stories about that. Um, This is a photograph of my crewmate, Dierman, who is doing the uh, washing up after a meal. So we will keep watch for large tankers and other uh, cargo vessels and things like that that might not see a 65-foot wooden boat. We will um, mind the helm, which means helping steer the boat. um, And then we will also do uh, cleaning and preparing meals. So the way that you clean dishes in a case like this is there is a, a bucket with a rope and you throw it over, you get some water, you put that in, you can see it there, a big, um, a big bucket. You put your dishes in there, rinse off as much as you can. Then you put them in a new bucket, get more fresh, fresh salty water, put them in there. And then you put in a little bit of detol, which is the British version of pine sol, in order to kill any germs. So the good news is nobody gets sick, right? The bad news is everything you eat, including your coffee and tea, tastes a little bit like salt and a little bit like pine salt. (laughs) (laughs) Another question people often ask me is, when you're on one of these um, old replica boats, where do you go to the bathroom, right? So this is the head. Um, There's no running water. There's no refrigeration. There might be one or two little burners that you cook your food on. There's, you know, as I mentioned, you get a lot of the um, water for washing up and things from the side. Um, And your facilities, you have to climb over the side of the boat um, and onto this little platform. And that is uh, like a canvas wall, which goes up to about here which is not so bad if you're a guy, but a little bit problematic if you're a female, because that's also where you shower. So you have to kind of shower like, <laughs> shower like that. Um, and this is also where I learned the meaning of yaw, pitch, tilt, and roll. Because when you're in this device, the boat's doing this, right, side to side, up and down, like this. And the sea is doing this. So it's a very wet experience, <laughs> and slightly frightening, because, well, for me, if you're a wimp like me, it's very frightening because this is what it looks like inside. There are these tiny, tiny little thin little boards, and you sort of do your thing through the hole, and then you, and then you can just see the, the rope there. you get more water and wash yourself off that way, right? And um, I know that it's very unlikely that there will be any sharks nibbling at me as I'm, in, as I'm in this device. But it, it is very hard for it to completely escape my mind as the water is coming up. Because sometimes the boat will do this and dip, right? So you can really get pretty, pretty darn wet. We tried, to, we tried to time that when the captain was in there. That was always our, our little ploy that we tried to do. So moving on to the next expedition that I was part of was the Arctic. Now we sailed, see if I can get this, to that little red arrow at the top. This is Svalbard, um, so it's almost 80 degrees north. And uh, so there, um, up to this point, I had painted the Atlantic and the Indian and the Pacific Ocean, so now it was time for me to paint the Arctic Ocean. It was my fourth ocean, four out of five. Um, the Svalbard Archipelago, this inset is the Svalbard Archipelago. It's an international territory, and you can see where we sailed right up across the top. Of course, there's no landmass on the top of the Earth, it's only ice. So, this is as far north as you can go without hitting sea ice I mean, um, the north, the polar ice cap. Um, I was there in October which means that the ice hadn't settled in, so that means that you could get as far north as that. The rest of the year, it's a little bit harder to get that far north. And this is the boat that we sailed on. So it's a three-masted barkentine, metal hulled, much more modern than the other boats that I've been on. This is from 1950s, um, quite luxurious by comparison, <laughs> for me anyway. Um, It was uh, not a historical recreation like the other boats were. This was an opportunity for artists and scientists and an architect um, to get thrown together on a boat to talk about climate reality. So everybody had different projects that they had come um, to this expedition with, and we all worked together and shared our ideas about our projects. When I was in the Arctic, you know, I thought, oh, I've, you know, I've been to one or two places on these expeditions, you know, I think I know what I'm gonna expect. Well, I was wrong, I was completely wrong. It was, like, it was like a slap in the face, I was so wrong. Everything was different about it. If you think about the Earth, most of us just live like in this middle strip, right? But if you go up here or if you go down here, it's completely different. So the light was different Famously, the sun is out all summer and it goes away in the winter. But what you might not realize is that it's a kind of, everything is kind of a Prussian blue. My camera had, but the sensor on my camera had no way to deal with this. I had to uh, change all my photographs when I got back to the studio and, and do a lot of light adjustment because everything was this fabulous coloration. The earth was very different with permafrost, where the top, say, kilometer is frozen, what happens is that the top meter of that in the summer and you know through October or so is liquid, basically. So there's rocks and things, but it's basically liquid. So if you want to build a house, and there are a few villages um, and research centers and things in Svalbard, you put in your pylons, like you would for you know, a house, and you put on your building, but they're in this kind of liquid stuff. And then so the house, you know, there'd be a lot of buildings where for a bit, <laughs> right? which was pretty funny. And um, all of their sewer and all of their electricity and all of their gas and internet and absolutely everything has to be above ground because you have this situation with the earth. And also thankfully for them, um, the poles are deserts. There isn't a lot of precipitation, but whatever precipitation there is, freezes. And there's no drainage because there's this layer of ice underneath this meter of kind of liquid. So any vegetation that we saw, there are no trees, but any vegetation that we saw really resembled some of the plants that we have here in the Southern California desert, which I found pretty interesting. Then, um, oh yeah, I want to tell you about the sun and the moon. again famously the sun disappears in the winter and it comes out in the summer right all you know all day long but what i didn't realize is that as the sun goes away the moon comes out to play right i uh, had no idea what i would do is i would go out every day and i would do sketches and i would take thousands of photographs and then i'd come back onto the boat and i would be working madly on my sketches and things like this and i and looking at my photographs my prussian blue photographs and realized that the moon was like in every single photograph. I, I was like, "When is that moon gonna go away?" Right? Because I'm so used to the the cycle. And it was it it does this as the sun goes away. It does, does this. It just goes around like this. So it's always on the top of the mountains. It's pretty amazing. It still has cycles, but it's just like hanging out watching. I don't know. <laughs> and then finally, um, of course, the animals are different. This is my my new favorite animal, the walrus. Um, I was uh, walking in the water, uh, taking pictures of the water, and this guy came and observed me, and I observed him. And I'd like, to, I'd like to think that we communed in some way. I think he thought I was probably the weirdest animal he'd ever seen. And I certainly thought he was the weirdest animal I'd ever seen. <laughs> But they're very friendly, very friendly 3,000-pound guys. And, and no, they don't have a lot of natural enemies, right? So they don't express a lot of fear. Incidentally, this photograph um, was used as the Explorers Club membership card last year. So I'm, I'm tickled to think that there are some really interesting explorers that have been to the moon or been to the bottom of the pacific ocean that carried around my little photograph in their pocket for a year when i was in the arctic i had some new um, challenges namely the cold um, the cold and the wind the snow is i can sketch in snow without any problem i can't really sketch in the uh, rain very well or when it's super windy Um, I would always have at least one pair of gloves, quite often two pairs of gloves, or even in extreme times three pairs of gloves, but I really can't sketch with three pairs of gloves on. (laughs) It's just, it's kind of a a non-starter, and what I'll do is I'll take a sketchbook like this one and clip it, and I can actually, and I actually bought straps so that if I need to, I can actually strap it to my body so that it doesn't blow away. Um, but it does make for rather quicker sketching because um, it is pretty cold. (laughs) Um, And the other thing that was super uh, challenging for me in this kind of environment is, so normally I will take something fairly prosaic like the Mediterranean Sea, right, or the Thames, or or something that is, is fairly common, and I'll abstract it. I'll try to simplify it. I'll try and make it more emotional. But when I got to the Arctic, because of the conditions that I was just talking about, it's already abstracted, right? There's big chunks of ice sitting on the beach, which is pretty abstract. Um, the mountains are getting carved in real time. There are glaciers, which are these you know, freaky shapes. Um, the colors are different. So it was a huge challenge for me to find a way to capture this area, um, in my own voice. And I think that what I did, as I'll show you here, is I started to make them more emotional and more abstract. So, this is one of my paintings from the Arctic. This is another one. This is from New Eelsend, which is the northernmost settlement on the planet. It is largely a research base. There are 10 countries um, operating 16 different research stations and this is where a lot of the research is done on climate Um, i got to see a weather balloon being set off for example which was pretty fun so they'll study things like lead and climate change and ozone and things like that because Svalbard is an international territory it means that pretty much anybody can set up shop which is pretty cool so right, so how many oceans is that so far? Let's see if we can go back through and figure it out. We've got the Pacific. Incidentally, this is a painting of Long Beach. Um, It lives in England, don't ask me why, but it does. It's in England, it's somebody's house. (laughs) There is the Pacific from um, Taiwan. So the Pacific on the east side, which is a bit of a mind trip. There is the Atlantic, this is the Isle of Mole in Scotland. Then as you can tell, this is the Brooklyn Bridge. This is the uh, Brooklyn Bridge which is on the East River which gives on to the Atlantic, so I count that. Then there is the Indian Ocean. So this is from Beira, Mozambique. This is also the Indian Ocean. So if you've ever been to Bali, on the north side of Bali, the beaches are black, which gives um, some quite unusual reflections and colors in the water there. And then there's the Arctic. So this is Svalbard and this painting which i just finished which is also svalbard and is also uh, viewable upstairs both of those paintings are viewable upstairs so and now finally at long last earlier this year i made it to the southern ocean the last my last ocean the world's last ocean um, where i uh, can now say that i have sailed and painted all of the oceans on the planet. That's me, by the way. <laughs> could be anybody, I guess. <laughs> and here I am sketching in Antarctica. The Southern Ocean was easily the most difficult uh, ocean to get to. Um, I went on a research vessel and it took, I left from Los Angeles and it took about a day to get to the equator flying. And then it took about a day and a half um, or maybe two days to get to the southern part of Argentina. There's sort of an obligatory um, overnight stay in Buenos Aires. And then there, it's a two day sail uh, boat ride, if you will, across Drake's Passage. And that's just to get to the easy part of Antarctica. Has anybody here ever been to um, the internal part of Antarctica? Maybe to the South Pole, anybody? Well, um, if there were, I would say <laughs> a huge high five, gold star, pat on the back, thumbs up to anybody that does that. Because if it takes five days to get to what I consider the easy part of Antarctica. I can't even imagine what it would be like to get to some of the more interior regions where the National Science Foundation and other people are studying. Some of my um, first ideas of the Southern Ocean. This is a photograph of mine of the Southern Ocean, and this is Um, also a photograph this is not an animation this is not a painting this is the real thing the colors really are those that vibrant just pretty fantastic the old ice for some reason um, is more blue or turquoise whatever you want to call that this is probably the largest you'll ever see this this is um, that picture there these little guys. The great thing about having these sketchbooks is they're just for me, right? Um, so they never—they're never for sale. They're for—they're on view, but they're never f- um, for sale, which means that I can um, sketch penguins and and cute little birds and things to my heart's content, <laughs> which is quite fun. Um, this is also a new, brand new painting. This is the Southern Ocean as well. And this painting I just finished this week. This is gonna be on view at um, Sea Gallery Fine Art, also here in Long Beach. And um, this is also um, a, a brand new painting. As you can probably tell, this is the reflection of two seals on a block of ice. It is. You might have to take my word for it, but it really is. Um, There are many, many more paintings in progress. In fact, my studio looks a little bit like Santa's workshop right now with all of the sketches and um, photographs that I'm thinking about and um, different paintings and things stacked up along the edges. So it's very exciting for me after all these years to finally be able to um, be painting the Southern Ocean Incidentally, um, if you've enjoyed this talk, I hope that you uh, do make it upstairs to see the aquarium exhibition. Um, On Saturday, on November 9th, there is going to be an opening at Sea Gallery Fine Art on Broadway here in Long Beach, which will have um, over 20, 21 anyway, um, plus a bunch of works um, on paper um, available there. On November 12th, which is next Tuesday, the Aquarium and Cal State University Long Beach's um, Shark Lab. We're gonna have a fundraiser here in the Honda Pacific Visions Theater on the other side, and all the proceeds are going to go towards the aquarium and also to the Shark Lab. So if you can make it to that, that'll be a really thrilling event. And then um, finally on November 16th, I'm gonna be part of KPCC's unheard LA in Northridge so if you're in the Northridge area I won't be telling the same story I'm going to be telling a completely different story so um, uh, which will be uh, a a new brand new story so (laughs) hopefully some of you can make it to that it's a free event um, and as I say that'll be at Northridge thank you
0: Thank you, Danielle. And I believe we have time for some questions from the audience. Linda, do you have a microphone? You do?
1: Thank you. I was just wondering how you kept your energy up through the whole process, because I know I go through like a week of school and I have no energy at all. So I know coffee helps, but how did you (laughs) keep yourself like motivated for this project? Well, that's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. I, um, I do uh, naturally have quite a lot of energy, um, but um, you know, the thing is, when you're super passionate about something, you just wake up super excited about it. I'm lucky that I get to do something that I really, really love doing. So, so how much time do you spend at sea
0: versus in the studio, and when do you get breaks, or do you are you at sea constantly, and then you come back and you're in the studio, or are you like doing different legs of the trip and then take a break? And
1: yeah, so it started originally. I could be on a boat um, really as long as I wanted, but um, but then um, I fell in love with a man and had a family. So um, I think it's uh, much more responsible for me to um, go on a leg, come back to the studio, go on a leg, come back to the studio. Yeah. That's a little bit more sane for me as well. Although with the first expedition, I was away for seven months. Um, and when I, when I did come back, I was living in London at the time, and when I did come back, um, the night that I came back, coincidentally, somebody was having a party and um, so I went along to this party, and people were like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. Have you been on holiday? <laughs> it's like, yeah, my whole world has actually just completely changed. I've been traveling through Africa by myself for seven months.
0: <laughs> Other questions?
1: Danielle, what do you envision as next steps in your journey to document water and uh, to try to save water in the oceans? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, One of the things which I'm uh, very excited about here at the aquarium is that as part of the exhibition that we have upstairs, um, the aquarium has helped me um, edit uh, and fact check uh, some 24 different things that we can all do to help um, mitigate climate change and to help protect our oceans. And I think that um, the further I go, the more the work really becomes about that because it's a much bigger picture than, uh, literally (laughs) a much bigger picture than um, what I've been doing in the past. And I think probably the next series of work after I finish the Southern Ocean is gonna be about even more polluted waters, because I don't think that most of us are aware of just how much pollution there is in them.
0: I have a question. Yeah. So you've been at the, in the sea for many years. What are some of the changes that you've noticed in the oceans?
1: Well, I think that um, it's kind of interesting. The, the way that my route took me So some of the first water that I painted was the Mediterranean Sea. And of course I can't, you know, in my kind of snapshot, you know, you fly in or whatever and you paint for a few weeks or a few months and then you fly out. It's not like the way a scientist would measure the change over time and really document how things have been. But from what I understand, we have 50% of the marine life that we did in 1950 um and the mediterranean i would say i saw hardly any life at all um, all the times that i've been to the mediterranean and inside the mediterranean which doesn't come as a surprise i've certainly read that um you know uh, people who fish professionally have had a harder and harder time catching things Um, when we i spent three weeks sailing the length of the mediterranean sea and I only saw one pod of whales the entire time. That was it, some pilot whales. But going to the Southern Ocean as um, the as the ocean warms up, right? It gets it's you know colder, of course, at the poles. And so the krill and other animals are going further and further south. And all of the animals depend on them. So when I was in Antarctica, you think well in my ignorance, I thought, oh, well, you know, it'll be kind of like a cartoon where you have some ice and there'll be, you know, some penguins. But actually there, I saw the most life there that I saw of any place else. And I think it is because it's more remote and so you don't have as much encroachment of humans on their territory. And also because it is colder and as the krill retreat further and further south, all of the other animals that depend on them are getting more and more concentrated. Um, Just how happy I am to see you all here. Thank you so much for taking your time out on a Tuesday evening. I know how hard that is in Los Angeles. Thank you. And thank you for
0: the work that you're doing to inspire people to care about the environment through your art. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us this evening. I'd like to also invite you back, in addition to the events that uh, Danielle mentioned, on November 12th, Barbara Taylor will be here to discuss lessons in conservation related to the vaquita porpoise, the most critically endangered marine mammal on the planet. So we do invite you to come and attend in person or tune in on live. Thank Thank you again for joining us, and thank you so much.